My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. On this Valentine's Day, I'm just going to come right out and say it. Most of us are curious about other people's sex lives. What they do in bed, who they do it with, how often they do it, how good it is, if they use toys, if they fake it, everything. But here in Canada, this data has been traditionally almost impossible to find. Sure, there have been sex surveys in this country, but they tend to focus on one aspect or one group or both, like contraception use among university students, for example. Or the surveys tend to be quick and dirty and unscientific, often put together by people selling sex toys or dating apps who want clicks. What we haven't had, and by this I mean we have never ever had in this country, is comprehensive and scientific research on the sex lives of all Canadians, a representative sample from coast to coast, single, married, gay, straight, students, the elderly, monogamous, polyamorous, all of it. We haven't had that until today. So, let's get it on. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Tina Fetner is a sociology professor at McMaster University, the author of the just-released-today book called Sex in Canada, The Who, Why, When, and How of Getting Down Up North. Hi, Tina. Hello. Tina, before this research, how much did we know about the sex lives of our fellow Canadians, and how did we know it before this? Well, uh, we knew some. There's some really excellent sexuality research going on in Canada. A lot of it focuses on sexual health, and a lot of it focuses on sexual risk. And so we tended to have a lot of information about the sex lives of some Canadians, like teenagers or sex workers, gay men, Mm. people with increased exposure to HIV. But we haven't yet, until now, um, really done just a broad overview of sexual activity um, of the average regular Canadian sexual behavior. What do we get out of an overview like that? What does it teach us and why is it important uh, for me to know in general how uh, my sex life compares to the average Canadian? Well, one of the things about sexuality is that, you know, we have a lot of myths and misinformation. We tend to have some moral panics about sexuality. And the more we have kind of a factual basis uh, of sexual behavior for average Canadian, we can move away from misunderstandings about our sexuality and really understand what regular Canadians do. 
Give me one example before we move on, and we'll probably get to more, uh, of a myth that was busted by this research. Okay, so uh, let's talk about our sexual behavior. How much do we have? How long do we have it? And so what I've learned was 70% of Canadians, for example, had sex in the past year. And sometimes you might think, gosh, that's lower than I expected. I thought everyone was having sex all the time. Um, but you think about it and you think, okay, well, some people in this survey are um, quite young and they haven't had sex yet. Other people are perhaps having health problems or um, between relationships. And so if you really think about it, it is like a big part of most of our lives, but not everybody's life. One of the things that we encounter a lot on this show as we look for uh, topics and areas to dive into is uh, how often Canada is conflated with America when it comes to uh, data that we simply don't have specifically here. Uh, and I know you mentioned this uh, in the introduction to your book about how, you know, most of the previous studies that we use up here have been done on Americans. So how different are we from the results you would see in terms of this kind of sexuality uh, in Americans? This is the question that was so interesting to me. And so I really wanted to know. And I think that, you know, in large measure, the dominant sexual culture of Canada is not all that different from the United States. Things like the proportion of the population that's lesbian, gay, and bisexual might be similar or the media that we consume about sexuality is often kind of similar. But to the extent that we have fundamental demographic differences with the United States, these are reflected in our sexual behavior. And so a couple of examples are our Francophone population mm -hmm. has a slightly different sexual culture than our Anglophone population. Do they have more sex or less sex? <laughs> what would you guess? More. They do have more sex than go. the Anglophone population. We gave the, our survey participants the opportunity to answer in English or French. So the people that chose to answer in French, um, about 53% of them said that they had sex in the past month compared to about 48% of Anglophone. I want to ask you just bluntly maybe to start sharing some of the results. I know you've teased us with a couple of them. How much sex are Canadians having in general as a population? You know, I've already mentioned that we have about 70% of us had sex at some point in the past year. Mm -hmm. But what we really want to know is like, how often do people have sex? Like, how much sex are they having? That's what we all want to compare ourselves to, right? We want to compare ourselves, right? But um, I think that we might be off base in terms of our understandings of how frequently people have sex. We just heard about... 50% of us have had sex in the last month. And um, other kind of more fine-grained estimates think that we prob most people probably have sex a little bit more often than once a week, hmm. right? So about uh, 55 or 60 times a year. And so, you know, this is sometimes, I think, a surprise to people who imagine that other people are having a lot more sex than they are. And I think that's one of uh, the really great things about knowing the facts. So uh, one point something times per week, very, very roughly, is that singles having more sex or married people having more sex or cohabiting people? Let's just use common law living together, partnered people. Yeah, it's very interesting. Sometimes singles get the reputation of having more sex than anybody else because they're out on the market and they're active and they're looking. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's pretty convenient 
to be living in the same place as your sexual partner. And so married people and, and people living in common law relationships have more sex and quite a bit more sex than single people. So the data from my survey show that about 55% of married people and 68% of common law people uh, had sex in the past month compared to 39% of single people. Why is common law so much higher uh, than married? It's fascinating, isn't it? We're not 100% sure. But one of the things I point you to is the difference in Francophone, Anglophone populations because um, people who live in Quebec and Francophone people in Canada are much less likely to get married than Anglophone populations in Canada. What about age? Where does it come into this? And, you know, I should mention one of the things that you write in this book and looked at in the research is that there are less taboos than there used to be around discussing sex um, in this day and age, but one of them is still around uh, sex in the elderly. Yeah, it's very interesting to see the age differences because uh, on the one hand, I think we think there's a very significant drop-off in how much sex we have as we get older. I think talking about um, senior citizens having sex, active sex lives is a little uncomfortable for younger people to talk about, but it's not uncomfortable for senior citizens themselves who are perfectly happy to report that they and many of them have active sex lives. Um, I think it's fair to say that the amount of sex we have does tail off over our life course. So people in their, you know, teens, 20s, and 30s are having more sex than people in their 60s and 70s. But it doesn't ever drop out entirely. Uh, People reported active sex lives up to the oldest people in our survey. And so um, sex is is a part of our lives the whole time. It's very strange, though, that um, we can dive into all this data, but yet uh, it's the discussion of the sex lives of elderly people that, as you say, makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Why is that? I think that this is just social taboos. We have always come from a position of uh, reproduction and childbearing as the place that is the safest kind of sex to talk about. And any movement away from that whether that's into lesbian and gay sexuality, whether that's into sex lives of people who are beyond their childbearing years or socially defined as too young to have um, children. These are the kind of sexual behavior we are less comfortable talking about. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Are there any other things that stand out to you when you look at this research as similar to that, as things that we don't often talk about but show up clearly in your data when people respond honestly? Yeah, we have um, so much great data on what kind of sex people are having. So one of the things that we talk about, we're more comfortable talking about our sexual relationships, we're more comfortable talking about love than we are talking about the actual 
sexual activities that we do when we're having sex, either alone or with a partner. And so I really enjoyed learning more about what kinds of sexual behaviors people reported having. And what I found is that people are having a wide variety of different kinds of sexual behaviors. But um, as I argue in the book, there are social differences that impact how often we might have one kind of sexual behavior or another. Give me an example of a couple of those things. These are um, uh, pretty fun to talk about. And so one of the things that I asked people was whether they identified as a feminist or not. So I wanted to see if um, something like a feminist identity that's a product of a social movement might have an impact on the kind of sex that people have. Hmm. And what I found out was that, yes, it did. And so people who um, took on that identity called themselves a feminist. For example, feminist women reported masturbating more often than non-feminist women. That might not be a surprise since talking about sex is an important part of um, feminism and feminist culture. But we also found that um, the kinds of sex and partnered relationships that feminists have are significantly different from non-feminists, including the amount of oral sex that feminist women receive and that feminist men are willing to give. And so I find that those who claim a feminist identity are having more sex that is kind of centers around the clitoris and around women's sexual pleasure than those who are not feminist. You just mentioned something that uh, I think is pretty interesting in terms of, you know, what kind of partnered sex people are having and, and with whom, especially when you look beyond what we would traditionally consider sex and start uh, considering things like oral sex. What did you learn about I don't know, reciprocity in the bedroom, uh, let's say, between uh, people who identify as women and identify as men. And uh, is there indeed uh, the kind of gap that I think a lot of people would envision between uh, who gives and who receives? Yeah, what's very interesting is that there is a serious gender gap in orgasms that every study in the U.S. and Canada has found as long as we've been asking this question only among heterosexuals. Right. And so this is not an issue of LGB sex. It's not, this is an issue of heterosexuality. And in the context of heterosexuality, men have uh, many more orgasms than women. And one of the things that we found with this research is that both men and women in heterosexual relationships Um, become more focused on male sexual pleasure Hmm. than on female sexual pleasure. It becomes a job of both partners to make sure that men's orgasms are seem easy, natural, no problem at all. And it's no one's problem to, uh, or it's less often everybody's problem to think about, you know, women's sexual pleasure. Hmm. And we did some follow-up interviews to ask people why. And one of the issues that we found was that uh, heterosexual people were really defining the real sex act as penile vaginal intercourse, mm-hmm. the, the penetrative part of sex, and re- defining clitoral stimulation as kind of extra mm-hmm. or foreplay or different from what real sex, what counts as real sex. And so they characterized it as 
extra work or taking a long time because it was kind of outside the bounds of what their sex is. And so just the way that we understand and the way that we think about sex can really have an impact on our sexual behavior. Is that changing or has that changed? You looked at people in every age group. Um, is that gap getting smaller? Are the kids doing it better <laughs> than, than we did? Yes and no. I would answer that two ways. So one of the things that um, we could compare our data to previous studies and we the gap that we found was smaller than in previous studies. And so that was about a 30 percentage point difference among heterosexuals. Hmm. But one of the things that we found in the interview data was that a lot of women found that their sex later in life was um, more satisfying and more reciprocal than when they were younger. And so many women, you know, sort of find their way to being able to ask for the things that they want or find their way to partners who are more willing to, to give that. And so that was very kind of hopeful. So far, we've talked obviously a lot about uh, men and women and uh, the kind of sex they have. Our notions of gender have changed considerably over the last uh, decade, two decades. In a survey like this that gets at the nitty gritty of sexual acts, how do you account for um, all the different ways people may identify now? I imagine that is kind of a challenging scientific question. Yeah, it's especially challenging for a survey like this that's a very broad overview. And so, um, you know, we did ask for all kinds of identities and let people um, answer in an open-ended way. But when you present the data from a survey like this, you kind of have to clump people together. And so it really needs kind of further research in order to understand smaller sexual cultures um, and communities. Um, mm -hmm. And that, and I mean that when I say that, everything from like uh, small uh, religious enclaves or people in the LGBT community that um, might organize their sexuality different from the average Canadian. When you got the data back and you started looking through it, what surprised you the most? What made you do a double take? Oh, that's a very good question. So I think that one of the things that surprised me was we asked people how they met their um, current sexual partner um, because we wanted to know, you know, how intense is this idea of a hookup culture, right? Are dating apps really driving people's um, sex lives um, today? And what I found was really surprising was that between 70 and 90% of Canadians told us that they met their partner in person, not through a dating app or a website or, or something else like that. And of course, this is different um, by age. Younger people are more likely to meet their partner online than older people. Right. But only about 30% of the youngest group, 18 to 29, met their partner online. And this was the same for people in their 20s and 30s. Oh, that's interesting. So really, just about a third of Canadians met their partner online and two-thirds met in person. For the older age group, 50 plus, this was about 15% met online and about 85% met in person. And so, you know, dating apps are important and they're an important part of our sexual culture today, but they're not driving how everyone meets their sexual partner. Face-to-face -face interactions still matter. 
Now, this data, I should uh, mention here, was recorded right before the pandemic, right? Yes. So it would be very interesting to see how that number has changed in 2022. Right. It's a very interesting question. We have the snapshot of, uh, of uh, 2018 and, of course, um, all of the various lockdowns and worries about COVID um, must have had a fundamental impact on how we organize our sex lives. I imagine that things like chatting with somebody over the phone or meeting in a in a video conference might have increased during a lockdown. Mm-hmm. We don't know if that happened for sure. We don't have the data. We can imagine, you know, we don't know how much that was just a temporary thing and how, if at all, it had a shift. We're going to have to collect more data. Uh, here's the big one. Are Canadians happy? and satisfied with their sex lives. How are we doing? This is one of the real joys of these data is that most people presented really positive view of their sex lives, whether that was high levels of relationship satisfaction or just we just asked, how happy were you with your sex life in the last four weeks? And we had upwards of 80% saying that they were um, extremely or very happy with their sex lives. And so that was really positive. Um, Obviously, sex can be good and pleasurable, but it also can be painful and harmful. And um, it's, you know, while we know that that's a real problem, it's good to see that most people are happy about their sex lives. A nice way to end it on Valentine's Day. Good job, Canada. Gina, thanks again for uh, joining us. And this research is fascinating and uh, the book is out now, right? That's right. Wonderful. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Gina Fetner, the author of Sex in Canada, the who, why, when, and how of getting down up north. We scratched the surface in this interview. You can check out the book if you want all the facts. That was the big story for more You can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. And if you really liked this episode or you really didn't like this episode, you can let us know by writing to hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca or by calling 416-935-5935 and leaving us a voicemail. This podcast, as always, is available in every single podcast player. It's available, as I mentioned, on the website, and it's available through smart speakers. All you got to do is ask yours to play the Big Story podcast. I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings. Thanks so much for listening. Hug your Valentine. We'll talk tomorrow.